I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Okay. I, I can't wait for this conversation. I'm so excited. Uh, we're, we're sitting down with Brooke Manning. You're biased, though. I am biased. I do have a bias here. I do have a bias. I, I sort of know Brooke. I mean, I met Brooke. Uh, Brooke, I don't know if you remember. Not that I'm saying I'm not excited for this conversation. I'm just saying that Jeremy has a particular, Jeremy's in a particular lane right now. Yeah. Which yeah, makes very, him very particularly much so. yeah. excited. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, you will be biased by the end of the conversation. Okay. Good I'll tell you know. that. Um, but uh, Brooke, uh, I, I so I know Brooke from Toronto, um, and uh, I I actually I don't Brooke I don't remember if you remember the first time we met, I but do. it was yeah. during the death symposium in Toronto, I think in 2018, and yes. uh, uh, I didn't technically meet you in this moment, but what I do remember I recall a moment where I'm on stage. I I just recently given a given a keynote on stage at the at the death symposium. For people who don't know, the death symposium is put on by the uh, Institute of Traditional Medicine. They would happen. It would happen in Toronto, and it was like this really beautiful conference about death and like the death trade and and everything to do with death. Um, and it's run by a really wonderful group of people. And I was there talking about talking about living with a you know a life shortening illness and. What I've learned from that, yada yada, and then I was also brought up on stage to to mediate a conversation between like Nahid Dasoni and a couple of other kind of like, uh, I mean, smarter people than me to talk about like palliative care and 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 death. And I remember Brooke, you asked a question from the audience, and it was a oh. question that, and like I was like, I felt so out of my lane, like I felt so out of place. And I remember your question was like, it was some kind of question that I was like. Oh fuck! I really hope I don't have to answer this because I don't know anything. Like what types of neurons are firing near the end of life? And Jeremy was like, "Please don't, please don't make that question come to me." I, I don't remember what it was, but I just remember I being I like, "Holy shit!" Please. I don't know, but I, 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 all I knew is I just didn't want anyone to look at me and go, "Jeremy, what are your thoughts?" <laughs> and uh, and then and then I think we met we met after that and yada yada. It was it was wonderful, but yeah. fast forward. And Brooke, you end up um, you end up being more involved with the ITM, the the, the um, Institute of Traditional Medicine, because you ended up doing their death doula training that they put on pretty much every year. And uh, I was talking to you about doing that training at one point when we were having like a discussion, and it sparked this inspiration in me that like maybe that's something that I would like to do someday, and. Um, I haven't really talked about it on the show, but I'm currently in the program right now. I'm doing the the course and it feels amazing. And so I thought it'd be really fucking wonderful to have Brooke, my friend, come on the show and talk to us about 
all things death doula. And uh, so I want to say thank you, Brooke. Thanks for taking time out of your schedule to sit down with us, come on the show and have a discussion. So without further ado, I'm going to hand the mic over to you. Brooke, tell us about yourself. Thanks so much for having me. Um, okay, well, about myself. Yeah, I did the training in um, 2022, so recently. But prior to that and prior to the death symposium, I did training with ANELDA, which is um, International End-of-Life Doula Association. Um, it's an American program. And it was great. I, I felt like I got, you know, what I needed to do. But when the pandemic hit, I really felt like I wanted a refresher. So that's why I did the ITM course. And the ITM course is um, quite, well, you'll know, you'll see. It's it's quite broad and there's much more to it than um, the original course. But Henry, who created Anelda, also teaches in the ITM course, which is great. Um, and yeah, I've been I've been practicing and um, as a as a dualist since about 2018, helping people with life limiting illness and their families, but also really focusing on people um, that might have a bit of fear around death, a lot of grief work, a lot of what I do is just helping people better understand what death is, how it makes us feel, how we can navigate it at end of life, all of that stuff. Ooh. It seems like from, you know, from somebody on, I mean, I probably have a, I, I, I come into this thinking that I know nothing. And I think that's fairly reasonable in, 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 in the relative nature between somebody who is practicing as a death doula and somebody who's in the training for, um, for the same program. Um, but also recognizing that I probably have uh, at least have contemplated death more than the average person, considering the nature of what we do. Yeah. Um, but still feeling like I'm, I'm very, um, like I'm very not very aware. Like I have, I have a lot of questions. Ben. Um, and, and like the first thing that pops into my mind when I think about what a death doula's role is or can be is the challenging nature of navigating the, the imp- possible amount of permutations of what somebody could be feeling when they come when they're coming to the end of their life or the people that or the people that are in their lives like their family members or or whoever it might be is like it's as unique as the person going through it it's (laughs) like it it is like that that experience for them is 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 one is one of a kind and so and then do you think the same could be said for a pregnant person and like, and like, you know, a, a, like a pregnancy doula coming into like that type of situation? Or do you think, because, do you think like death specifically is, it, is just on a grander scale, far more, far more complex in terms of like the way that everyone's showing up to that Yeah, I think, you, I think, junction. you know, and again, this is like speaking from, from not much of a place of, uh, of uh, knowledge, but like I would, I would, uh, I would speculate that it's similar but you're going to find. I would say that in pregnancy, you're probably going to find a lot more overarching similarities, right? And then, and then pockets that are like very unique and special to the individual. Whereas I find that death has, I feel like death is more. I feel like there's a more unique quality to the experience of of death and how somebody feels about death. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong in that. What, no, what, I agree. What, like, what what is the what is what is your experience and how to navigate approaching a situation with with a new person and trying to help them through 
their understanding and yeah. the grieving process and all that when they're facing when they're facing their death. Yeah, I mean, the death is sort of the I like to think of it as the main universal unknown. We might have ideas about what happens based on our culture or our religion or our upbringing or what we're told, but we really don't fully know what happens. So I think approaching it with that mindset is is like the, the a good base. And then mm. if we what I do with people just to get on the same page in wavelength is I always liken things to nature. I always come back to nature and its impermanence. And then through that lens, we can think about our own impermanence. So if we look mm. at the cycles of nature, if we look at the way that, you know, a tree uh, may lose its leaves over its lifespan and how many times and how things die and change and grow and reverse. Um, there's just cycles, cycles to everything. If we can get people back to that sort of core understanding of why we're here and who we are, and, and through that lens, they might be able to sort of lessen fear about death, but also we can get, um, we can get in a pathway of moving in the same direction just to start the conversation. And then, of course, it changes depending on their life limiting illness, depending on their previous experience with death. In our Western world, mm. world it's very, very different. Obviously, we, there's, mm. we live in a post-capitalist, you know, society, and that's really, really changed the way we look at the funeral industry and death in general. So I think if, if when I'm approaching someone in the beginning, what I do is we just have a conversation and we talk about anything and everything about death from their world. And then I try to apply it from my, this lens of understanding that I have. But yeah, mm. it can be tricky, an, but it's, yeah, no, go ahead. It's just a creative process, really. It's about meeting people where they're at and, you know, finding ways of understanding and communication through, through that. Mm. You know, when you say that, when you, when you put it in the form of nature and like looking at, you know, the cycles of the seasons and things and how, Oh my God, there's this beautiful, uh, beautiful scene in uh, Marcel the Shell when he's doing the interview with, um, I can't remember her name, the woman from 60 Minutes. And, and, oh yeah, and right. He's like, and Marcel's like, and the leaves have fallen and blossomed and they've come and, <laughs> yeah. and, and fallen again and blossomed again and the sun has risen and, and it's, it's done that th it's done that time and time again. And she's like, how much time has that been? He's like two years. <laughs> and, uh, and it's like, and it's very, very beautiful. He put, like, he basically puts time in the most beautiful, the most beautiful yeah. context of words. Yeah. And, yeah. um, Anyway, that was just the thought that popped in my head. But when you put it that way of, of thinking of nature and how things, how the seasons cycle through and things die and then are reborn in this way, like it seems so, it seems so kind of natural or um, like easy to then shift my thinking to, to, to framing human death in, in a very, in a very similar way. But then, but then what you find definitely in pop culture and I definitely see it in myself whenever I have like whenever I, I feel pretty serene about death I would say most of the time and then I have probably like 25% of the time that it is extremely terrifying and um and unknown and scary um that we just have this like well we have we have our I we have our me side you know mm -hmm. we have the 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 the, the, the um the ego, the ego that forms, which like has this, 
you know, very important role in psychology in terms of developing, uh, you know, your sense of awareness and how you like move through the world. But then it has all these drawbacks. And one of them, I, one of the, if it's, of its biggest issues, the ego's issues is, is, is then how we look at death an inevitable death. Cause it probably serves a good, a good role in terms of like nature, in terms of like, in terms of um, like an animal that's trying to, you know, run away from another animal that's trying to kill it. It's like, Whoa, that you're trying to kill me and I need to survive. But then when you're facing like an inevitable death, like you've got a terminal illness and that, that there can't be anything more done, like whatever it might be, that fear, that, that sense of ego, that sense of I is really, is really in the way of, Mm. of, of, of reaching like a serene understanding of, of death. How do you, um, how does that, how does that come up? Like how, how, how do you, how do you handle the conversations of, of what you were saying before about like the cycles of, of nature and like just the kind of the natural process of death competing with the like, but it's happening to me. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, We're and these are just the easy questions. We're just starting off light, (laughs) you know, so no no worries. (laughs) (laughs) it's like i I, it's very complex but i do i think about it all the time i have to right and and you will future i'm sure but um we're so attached to our identity as human beings and we're also so attached to our identity through productivity especially the society that we live in so i well i facilitate these um I, I, I call them death meditations, these death meditation ceremonies. Um, and I've been doing them for a while now, once a month, and about 18 folk come into a room and um, there's an intention around it. And we move through the process of fear together through a, like an explorative meditation. And then we move through what could be um, answers to a last testament or a will, but I like to use it in the lens of not um, looking at possession, um, but rather how you've influenced people, um, how you find mm. your grace, um, what your legacy could be um, outside of your job or or the things that keep us here uh, productively. Um, so I think that starting conversations for in that way like those meditations that i have led has has really helped people again ground into that identity identity and remove themselves or ground into death rather and remove themselves from their own identity a lot of a lot of people at the discussion at the end end up talking about how they entered the the ceremony feeling feeling like they're not doing enough in life and if they were to give in if they were to be given a week to live, they would feel like they didn't produce enough or they didn't feel Mm. like they did enough. And I think that everyone feels that way. I think it's just Mm. sort of the core at what it is to be a human, especially in the Western world. Mm. Um, But we can also look to other cultures that don't deal with death in the same, in the same way in terms of identity and ego. Um, I think it's a practice. I think it's a reminder of, of, you know, rem- again, remembering why we're here, remembering that, I mean, it might sound a bit woo, but it's, 
it's a beautiful gift to be here. And it's a miracle to be here, to be alive, to spend each day alive breathing. We don't really need anything more for our identity than that. We just, we mm -hmm. put other stuff upon it. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's totally, it's a, it's a bit, it's a big conversation and it changes depending on who you're talking to and their lens and their yeah. framework. But it's a slow yeah. process uh, yeah, of just yeah. really investigating and asking questions and like trying to figure out where the fear came from. Because we, I was listening mm -hmm. to a podcast the other day and a person that I really love is Michael Mead. And he's this, um, I think that, yeah, the podcast is called Living Myth. And he talks about the word like thoroughfare and how the origin of the word um, means to move through and move through fear. So in order to transcend fear, transmute it, we must move through it. We can't just, you know, look at it, hold it. We must do something with it. So mm -hmm. I think investigating that slowly, picking apart the reasons um, why we may fear. We don't, we're not born into the world with fear, right? We develop it. So we have to figure out mm -hmm. where that came from. And then from there, we can explore you know, our identity, um, how, how it will feel when we're, when you, when you die in that, in that particular light. That makes mm. sense. There's, there's like a, the, basically everything you said there resonated so, so much with me. I, I, I do a, um, I run a yoga teacher training once a year and I do, um, I do a lot of the philosophy teaching for it. And, um, and a big part of it and a big part of like making like old philosophy from like really old books be, you know, relevant and useful <laughs> is basically <clears throat> taking those concepts and saying like, okay, well, let's look at like how, you know, your self, like capital S, um, you know, your, your, your spirit, your oneness, yourself, your consciousness, like kind of whatever um, way you want to describe it um, is like you're, you're sort of like born as this like very like pure version of that. And then as you then move through the world and, you know, you start to go to school and you meet friends and you have sports and you have responsibilities and you have failures and you get a job and you get an education and like, you know, you have like these people that put expectations on you. And then because of those expectations, you put expectations on you. and it's like you exactly. layer all this stuff onto you and like, and you start to like, you're this in this circle, which is you. And then you've got all these lines drawn to other circles. And before too long, you start to think that all the other things that you've drawn connections to are what you are instead yes. of the thing that you started with mm. and it's all layered yeah. on top. And when we start to get to really tough places in our lives, I think what, what death obviously being like the, the one, yeah. um, but then also in, you know, life transitions, big career transitions yeah. or having a, ch making decision to have a child or, you know, move, you know, home and country or whatever it might be. Then, all these things sort of like start to come into conflict and, and it's hard to, and I feel like a lot of that conflict comes from the fact that a lot of people inevitably through the circumstances of life, lose sight of who they are and not yes. like in a bad way, like that they did something wrong to do that, but that's just kind of how life ends up turning out. You layer on top. And so when totally. you get to these crossroads of these like really challenging decision decisions that everybody has to make um, or circumstances. And then again, like death being like the one, then 
when you've when you don't know yourself, capital S, then <laughs> those things are those things like the 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 fear like ex, is is grown exponentially. Um, and the closer we can kind of like get to, and, and I guess that kind of speaks to. I love that how, so much. Just by the way, I love that so much. Everything that you just said. <laughs> Thank Perfect. You. Yeah. Like, yeah. Like you know, like 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 why things like why things like whatever meditation, mindfulness, yoga, whatever whatever makes your floats your boat. If, if it makes you more aware or more mindful of your life, like whatever Ooh. that practice is, while you are alive then mm. all these things get a little bit, not easy, but they get easier, mm. you know, because yes. you are closer to yourself. You might not be there, yeah. but you get closer. I mean, and maybe yeah. not so much, maybe not even easier, maybe just more clear, right? Yeah. Like, like one of the things yes. that I like, you know, just coming back to that point that you you were talking about the, the, the like guided meditations that you, that you hold um, once, once a month. And, you know, it was, it was making me think about how, I've said this time and time and time again over the, over the lifespan of the podcast. I mean, over the lifespan of like most of my adult life, I've, I've said this, that this statement, which is like, I have contemplated or I've meditated on the idea of my own death so much since I was like 10 years old. And that's because of my history with CF and learning that my, you know, my illness was a life shortening illness. And I thought I was going to be dead by 30, yada, yada, whatever. Um, and I have, I've, I've sat and I've personally like meditated on death on my own, you know, not guided or anything like that. A few times, you know, a few, like a few like key times that like stuck out to me. And I've had a few like really pivotal um, psychedelic experiences that like that very heavily revolved around the like meditation of death. Um, but it wasn't, it wasn't until a couple of weeks ago that I realized I've never actually actively meditated on death whilst being guided by someone who is also focusing on that meditation being on your own death. You know, like, like I've never had somebody else yeah. guide me through that. It's always, it's always been a solo thing. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so the reason I'm saying that is because up until a couple of weeks ago, if someone had said to me, like, how do you, how do you feel about death? How do you feel about your own death? I would have said, um, I feel really content with the idea of dying. And there's no part of me that is like afraid. I, I feel really safe. I feel, you know, there's almost like, a, there's almost a, I, I, this is weird to say, but like almost an excitement to know, like, what, did, what will that be like? What, what, what is next? As opposed to like, oh my God, I, I, it's, it's fucking terrifying. The thought of what's next. It's, there's more of like a, an embracement. However, in, in the death doula training, and you, you had mentioned Henry, who was, he, he was the, he was our first, the first two days of the training. He, he led the, the training and he's this beautiful man who, um, who is, is a really wonderful educator. And on each day he led us through these, uh, these exercises. And one of them was like an exercise to meditate on your death. But it was like a guided meditation that he led you through. And it's funny, like I came into that meditation thinking to myself like, oh, well. Expert. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, totally. <laughs> totally. Like I was like, I, you know, like I was like, well, I know like I'm, I'm going to nail this. And I, know, I could lead this class. And I, and I, and I know like I'm going to come out of this and my eyes are going to be dry. And I'm going to be fucking cool and calm. And I'm, just, it's, I'm a cucumber. This is great. 
and we go through this meditation and I come out of it and, and I am, I am soaking wet from tears and snot. I am like, I'm, I'm in the midst of like coming back from almost like hyperventilating because I was so, I was so moved to emotion. And the reason why I was so moved to, to emotion was because I made a realization that I had, I had never thought of, or I had never made, or I'd never really contemplated until this very moment, which was, and, and the meditate the you know, the exercise particularly was like, what is the one, what is the, um, how, how do you feel about your, how do you feel about your legacy or how do you feel about what you are leaving behind and about in particular, about the things that you have like not yet, um, not feel like you have not yet done or like didn't get, didn't get to complete. And again, in the past, if you had asked me that, I'd say, well, I've done, I've done a lot and I don't really feel like there's anything I haven't done. And if I died tomorrow, I'd be kind of cool with it. I'm sure there's lots of things I would like to do, but like, whatever, I've, I've done stuff. In this meditation, I came out of it and I was like, holy shit. If I, if I die before I even attempt to like have and, and rear a child, I, I don't know what I would do. I, like I, I, that would be the greatest regret that I can ever conceive of in this, in this current moment. And I never, ever, ever remotely even came close to having that thought before. And it really fucked me up. Like it really rocked me to my core. And so all of that to say, like this, this idea of meditating on death, if it's something that you have never done before, you really should just give it a go. And, and, and if, you, if it's something that you have done before, but you haven't done it in a while, I think the one thing that's like so important to remember is that those thoughts, those feelings, those meditations, they're, they're never, they're never going to be just stagnant and be the same. Like it is always yeah. changing. It's always mm-hmm. evolving. It's always going to evolve and to be guided through it by somebody. That's like, man, if you've never done that before, yeah. what a powerful tool, what a powerful experience. And, and kudos to you, Brooke, for like, for taking that on and 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 providing this for a group of people, um, mixture, yeah. After I having like, done so much of that yourself, you know, yeah, it's all it's all a practice of of bringing the scary things to the light. Because if we can do that every mm. day, Taylor, you were sort of mentioning this too, like bringing death in onto the surface level every day allows us to look at us it, at it regularly, allows us to to face it and maybe you know five years from now we'll look at it differently we won't fear it so much yeah. a week from now we'll look at it differently yeah. we won't fear it so much and the practice of meditation too is just as a general practice it's transformative it's incredibly amazing because it sets you into yourself it sets you into your surrounding but to meditate specifically on death is um oh i think it's such, just such a such a a gift and to do it with someone that is very comfortable and familiar with death too makes it that much that much easier for sure. Mm-hmm. The the meditations that we've done have been incredible. Like I sometimes, you know, I cry. I'm I'm still a human being. I'm still, you know, I'm content with death, but I still feel all the things that you just said, Jer. And um, there's still things that I want to do in my life. And I'd probably be sad if I couldn't get to do them. But um it's just about, you know, being able to look at it every day and feel feel a more peaceful feeling or a more um, easeful feeling when 
approached with it. So it doesn't have to be this thing that just mm-hmm. arises and, and you know, you're faced with all of the, the, the troubles of it in the moment. You can mm-hmm. kind of parcel them out over time to better understand your relationship to it. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. I, yeah. I one thing that I'd love to kind of <laughs> dive into, um, and and this is a little bit of a shift, if it's okay with the two of you, but like shifting maybe away from like the the philosophical ponderings of like what it means to die <laughs> and and how to like view death, but get into like the the actual like sort of technicalities of of the job of a death doula. Um, and yeah. the, the, the reason why I want to do this is because this was, uh, you know, again, I, I've, I'm, I'm two days into the training and, um, on the very first day, like we kind of, we, we broke down the three phase doula model and I thought, I thought it was extraordinarily interesting because it was the first time I ever, I ever heard about like the process that a doula would go through with a family that is dealing with someone who is, who's coming to their, the end of their life. Um, and so I, th- I feel like it would be really beneficial for us to kind of go through what those three phases are for the person out there listening to this right now who perhaps like, you know, perhaps their grandmother is coming to the end of their life and, and they're hearing this and going, oh, like, is a death doula something that I should ask my grandmother if that's something that she would like to have a part of her end of life care? Or if it's someone who's, you know, someone who's young, who's dying themselves listening to this and going, maybe I want a death doula to be, to, you know, help me through that process. Um, just to break down, like, what, what does it mean? What, what does it look like? What does it yeah. look like to have yeah. a death doula work with you or, and your family um, when it comes to that time of end of life? Yeah. So we provide um, bio, socio, uh, psych, philosophical, um, holistic support, holistic support for people at end of life. And it sits along, it can sit alongside palliative care. It does not take the place of palliative care, but it can aid to it. Um, so we can be an advocate for you. Um, if you're in hospice and you require stuff, we can, there's, there's many different roles. We can sit, um, at vigil at end of life. Um, we can create and inform families and the the, the dying person um, systems of care that speak to their specific needs outside of sort of the industry of death. So my mm-hmm. focus personally is on green death practices. Um, and the thing the thing about a death doula is they have always existed. They existed long before the funeral became an industry. So when I think my practice of being a death doula, when I think of being a death doula, I think of, I think of perhaps a midwife or um, I think of a, it's, it was typically a woman and in my culture and Irish 
um, a lot of women were mourners or keeners. And I think about people. Yeah. Yeah. It it was the role. It was a role for someone to sort of step in and grieve, but also uh, it's complicated before the, before the funeral industry became an industry, it was quite normal for, you know, a wife to take care of husband, their husband at end of life for, you know, a parent to carry their child to be burned. It's, it's, um, it's for me personally, it's about returning to those understandings mm-hmm. and ancient practices that have always been there. Um, so my role is I do, I do a lot of things, but specifically if I'm working with people at end of life, um, it can be as simple as sitting in the room and being a tiny fairy that is just listening and making sure that, you know, the machine isn't driving them nuts with the clicking sound and you can put them outside or um, making tea for everyone or holding space for people if they're grieving, um, facilitating conversations at end of life. If you notice that, you know, someone has something to say to someone that needs to be tied up, just um, very carefully facilitating those those conversations, but never making it about you. It's kind of this role of just being being present and sitting in presence with the family and through that um, area of death so that you can better advocate for the person that's dying, the families around them. People hire me for very, very different reasons. And my, mm-hmm. my scope of care is I offer about eight different things, but sometimes people can hire me from the beginning into the end. And what that would look like was, um, you know, uh, working with them through grief, working with their family through grief. Um, if they've just received a diagnosis, which is what I'm doing with a couple of people right now. And then if they choose to carry on and hire me further, I could help them plan green funerals. I can help them with advanced directives. I can help them, um, uh, any, basically anything that you'd need to know about death. I've been trained so that I can facilitate and help. And my scope of care, I'm also a queer person. I'm polyamorous. I, I, I want to offer care to a pocket of people that, you know, might not be um, at the, the, the top of the list when it comes to uh, thinking about death care for alternative lifestyles and families and, you know, mm-hmm. trans folks. And there's, there's so many, there's, yeah, there's so many, I could talk forever and I'm just going to blab, but <laughs> yeah, there's so yeah, many well, ways I mean, that, yeah. that, that a death doula can be a death doula, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I remember like when we were going through in the course, like when we were going through the the different phases and the things that you can do, I, I was just so overwhelmed by the amount of shit that there is that you can like step up. It's like the roles that you can step into. Um, and one of the, one of the, and, and you just, you kind of mentioned this uh, briefly, but one of the things that I thought was really interesting and I, and, and I didn't know much about this prior to the training, but was like how was, um, was, conducting vigil or like holding vigil for someone. Um, and I, I, I'm hoping, like, I'm wondering if you could maybe, maybe give us like a, uh, a rundown of like what that means and what that looks like. And, and perhaps like what that's looked like for you in, in your, uh, in your practice, like what, what does vigil look like for people and, and why is holding Shen- vigil important <laughs> in the process of dying? 
Sure. Yeah. Firstly, it's important just to give people an opportunity to say goodbye, um, be present at end of life, be present at, at in the death space, lessen their fear around it too. Um, I find vigil incredibly sacred and so very beautiful. Um, I've only done two so far. It just depends on how far, you know, you get with, with, with people or if they want to hire you. I, I'm a volunteer vigil sitter, so I would never charge for my, my service in that way. But um, yeah, it can happen depending on your culture too. It can, ha- it can be several hours. It can be several days. Um, but it's a, it's, a, it's a point where people can come and gather with the person and with the body at end of life and be together, celebrate their life, have a little bit of closure. It's, I personally think it's important. Some people might not agree with this, but I think it's important to, if, if you, with your loved one, to be them at end of life, to have that understanding of um, the fact that they're still, they're still with you, but their body may be gone. It's just rather than... Um, then, yeah, there's so many practices where bodies are sort of just uh, removed without, without conversation, without understanding. There's, there's a lot of times when people don't understand uh, their right, right at end of life. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, we actually have like more rights than we consider. It's we think that we just need to call everybody super quickly and things need to be removed. And, you know, that's not the case. And before that, during vigil, yeah, it's 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 the time to just come to come together, to breathe the same air, to witness each other. It's I find it it's a very slow process. It's um it's careful. It's intentional. It can often be very sad, but it can also be very heartwarming. Um, mm. The two that I were at were super heartwarming. So it was a really mm. beautiful experience for me personally and the families involved. Cons- considering how sad death can be, um, do you, and, and I'm sure you probably like feel this question quite a bit when you meet people and tell them that this is, you know, one of the things that you do, but like, do you find that being a death doula working in that space to be, um, like hard on yourself emotionally? Um, yeah, I think people ask me that all the time. And it's so funny when I tell people that I'm an end of life doula, they'll often be like, oh, that's so morbid. And again, it comes back to the fear aspect. And I don't personally think it's more, but I think it's beautiful. And yeah, I think I have have very good self-care practices and I'm a chronically ill person myself. So I, yeah, I take care, a very, very good care of myself. I make sure that, you know, I have practices. So when I'm sitting in my truck, if I go and go and work with somebody, I come back. Obviously I'm a human being and I'm, I'm, chorus. I'm sensitive. I feel a lot. I feel a lot for other mm. people. I'm going to carry some of that stuff back with me. I'm not, not a robot. So I'll have, I have my truck time. I sit in my truck for a long time and I just let myself grieve if I have to, because 
one of the things I don't, you can cry in front of your clients and, and, and people, but, and I, and I emote obviously, but I don't want to make it about me. I'm not going to sit there and sob my face off, but I'm obviously experiencing something alongside them. So yeah, I have practices of just sitting in my truck, having a little cry, listening to music, um, you know, reminding myself of my own meditative practices too is really helpful. Mm -hmm. But I try, and Henry brought this up in my first training with Anelda, actually. He, I try, when I open the door to my house, I just, I leave everything at the door. I don't bring it in with me unless I'm, you know, intending to work that day. I try not to bring it in with me. I don't want to carry it to my partners. Um, mm -hmm. I, w I want to make sure that I'm, you know, solid and grounded in myself so that I can be of great service to other people. But I also need to be really um, mindful of myself and my self-lead. And, you know, I, I have other jobs too and one that's very demanding. So I just make sure that I have lots of time and space for myself. I always have two days a week off that are just for me that are like unplanned, unbooked where I'll like just, you know, make music or go out and walk the dogs or read or whatever it might be. But I need those times to just decompress and, and you know, live in the awareness of my own life too and the aliveness mm -hmm. of life at the same time. Yeah. Mm -hmm. We, we faced like, we, we, we get that, we got that, especially when we first started doing this podcast, we yeah. got a lot, we got that question a lot, like, yeah. you know, talking to yeah. people who are dying or very sick or. What a bummer. Yeah, exactly. You know, that question yeah. came up yeah. all the time. And, yeah. and through the years, I, I mean, I always was like, I, I always was like, well, I actually leave those conversations like feeling, feeling like, feeling better because I yeah. feel like. Yeah, totally. Like, yeah. It's like, I've just like made a contribution yeah. yeah. In, in, in like, in terms of like having this conversation and, and, you know, I feel better. They, they feel better. Like everybody, it's like, because we've all just like gotten it, gotten it out and talked about all this stuff. We've like, we've done something exactly. like very, very like emotionally productive for ourselves. And then, and, and then the thing that it, the thing that it does is it is very like energy intensive. Like, and Fair. I, and I don't, and I guess you could, I, and I guess I do mean that in the sort of like Eastern philosophical energy wise, but also just in like, I'm exhausted, I can be exhausted. And it's not like, yeah. I don't, I don't feel, I don't feel, uh, I don't feel like sad or like weighed down. I just feel like, whoa, I just like gave a lot because it takes a lot to like, mm. to be there, to hold space. Yeah. To, to be inquisitive, it's to ask questions. Like it takes a lot of energy to do that. So and we, I remember when we first started doing the podcast, we would book, you know, we'd, uh, we were doing all of our recordings in, in Halifax and then we might go to Toronto for a weekend and, and do like 10 episodes in like two days. And which is, which is stupid. So insane That's to think about now. <laughs> <laughs> because then we would do these like five episodes in a yeah. day and we'd literally be like, oh my God, I'm dead. Yeah. And then we go out and drink. He loves and <laughs> and like which didn't which didn't help anything. And yeah. Shout out Ossington Street. Don't ask in Ossington. You know? And like and 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 like that's what it really like took. That's what it really yeah. took. And then over yeah. the years it kind of like we started to realize to manage to like give everything to people that we were talking to was like to not overdo it, to not have too many conversations. All, yeah. all at once or like in the run of a day because it takes so much that we want to be able to give that. Yeah. And the, and I mean, you know, this speaks to both 
you know, what we're doing, but also it, it speaks to work as a death doula. I'm sure. I mean, at least this is something that I, that I've kind of, um, that I've taken just from the, the short time I've been in the, in the training, but like the importance of active listening, like, and, mm-hmm. and, and active listening, yes. you know, the, and, and this is, the, uh, this is not to be like, this is not to, I don't, I don't mean to say this to be like, Hey, podcasting and death doula, like you gotta be a good active listener. And that like, the reason I say that is because, um, active listening is so important in all facets of life, but especially when we're dealing with grief and di- death and dying. And I know that like for myself, for myself personally, you know, when I, one of the reasons I took the, the, the training, um, for the contemplative end of life care was be, I, I, I didn't take, I'm not taking this training to become a death doula. I, I don't think I'll ever actually practice as a death doula. Maybe I will, but the, the reason I'm actually taking it is so that I have a, a, a greater awareness and a, and a more, a, a greater sense of like familiarity with death so that I can manage my own thoughts and feelings around it, but also so that I can be a better, so I can show up better for the people in my life that happen to go, that that happen to, that will inevitably go through grief Mm. because I have found that that when that has happened in the past, maybe I am there, maybe I am active listening, maybe I am like present the way that I need to be, but I don't feel like I am because I feel like when someone shows up to me and they say, my, you know, like Bridie, you know, a couple of years ago, my father died, her father died, her father passed away. And like that made me feel certain ways about her father's death. That, and, and so, and I get weird around death when it's like close to me. And, and so like, maybe I didn't show up for her the way that she needed because I wasn't actually actively listening the way that I could have. And so, um, yeah, anyway, that, that whole point is just like active listening is, it's yeah. so key. It's such a key thing that, and a, and a term that probably gets thrown around a lot, but like when you actually sit and think about like how powerful it can be, it's so it's important. Huge. It's so, so, so vitally important. Yeah. It's presence and, and we, we crave it as humans and we especially crave it at end of life. It's, and it's like, it's like therapy work. It's, it's the say it's, you know, it sits alongside of that too. It's um, active listening and deep listening and the reflection back. It is so important to grief work and death work in general. Yeah, I agree completely. And that just taking the course to in order. So many people in my program took the course, both programs actually, took the course not to necessarily be a death doula, but just to better understand death in general, how they might approach yeah. death and how they might help their their family at end of life. You know, like mm-hmm. I'm 38. I think about my, you know, I, my mom she's she'll be 70 this year she's still kicking she has all you know she's good to go but i i think about how i want to be there for her at end of life you know my dad died when i was really really young and most of my family died when i was really young which probably propelled me into a little bit into what i do now um but those those situations weren't necessarily handled the way that um I would have liked them to be handled or my mom would have liked them to be handled because we weren't just, we weren't educated about, you know, what we could do at that time. And, and there wasn't a lot of, um, yeah, there wasn't a, a big practice about deep listening around death and grief. Um, so yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that it's part of a conversation now. I do feel like it's growing and changing and people are more deeply listening to each other and, and what they need. 
Do you feel like as a death doula that when it's your time to die, you're going to fucking crush it? <laughs> People ask that sometimes. <laughs> it's so funny. Like, um, I don't even know what crushing it would be. Like, no, Jared, I think it'll be. Like, you're going to have the, the best vigil. It's going to be the, it's going to be mean, the, the like, <laughs> imagine I do know exactly what I want. I do know exactly what I want. Yeah. That's for sure. But that's all like the concept of what I want is based on a good death. I can't perceive if yeah. I'm going to have a good death or not. And a good death, you know, me, could mean uh, a good death traditionally, like formatively as it's defined means, you know, someone is taking care of at end of life. They know how they're dying. All their loose ends are tied up. They're not suffering, you know, but mm. who who knows what to say will happen? Who knows? We, we can't all have good deaths. So death doulas also have to be there for the deaths that are tragic and unexpected. Um, and that mm. might be mine. Who knows? But but mm. if it isn't and I get to have a good death, yeah, it'll be it'll be really nice. It'll be really fun. Like I I... I think about, you know, the things that I'd want to surround myself with, um, the smells that I want to have, the sounds that I want to hear, the people that I want to around, you know, nature, animals, roses, you know, all that good, good stuff. Um, mm -hmm. And the practice of the living funeral, too. We get to explore that a little bit. And I don't know if you've done that in your training yet, but you get to sort of carve yeah, out, yet. you know, what that might look like and... Mm -hmm. It can be kind of a, it can be a joyful experience if we just let ourselves go there. But yeah, mm -hmm. I'd like to have a big bit of a party. That would be cool. <laughs> I'd like yeah. everyone yeah. to be on the same page yeah. about that. That would be really fun. Yeah. <laughs> but again, people yeah. grieve differently too. So it, it really just depends on how people approach death. I might right. write, I'd love to have this like beautiful, like, I don't know, Irish, you know, wake or whatever it might be. But other people might just might not want to laugh and cry or laugh and have a party and you know they might be in their grief and yeah i want i want there to be room for that too i don't want people to um i want people to feel like they can move through it however my my death however however they need to mm. you know yeah i think about it a lot <laughs> All, all amazing yeah. things for, for everybody to think about, you know, As, especially like what you put the, yeah. the way you placed it with the things, you know, th to think about the smells, to think about the sounds, to think about your surroundings, to think about the people, you know? Um, yeah. And, and I feel like for a lot of people, those thoughts, we push those thoughts away because they're too much. They're too sad. They're too, I don't want to think about who's, who's around me while I'm dying. I don't want to think about the songs that I want to hear when I'm close to death. I don't um, want to think about what it's going to smell like because it's too, it's too close to the heart. It's too, it's too raw. Um, but man, it's, it feels pretty damn good to, to get past that thought, that feeling and, and actually dig into what those things could look like and what, what that could be. And like really important yeah. in the sense that like, in like a practical sense of, yes. of like when you, when not, much different, but not that dissimilar to the way that, like, you know, it might feel okay to procrastinate something <laughs> until the time comes where procrastination is no longer viable, and then you're faced with something, and it is overwhelming and stressful. And yes. like, and I think when you're dealing with something like death, which almost has this, like, inevitability of being overwhelming and very, you know, a lot of things that we can't even really comprehend until we get there, that 
doing the things that you doing doing the things that are accessible to us in advance just like has so much value to it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I had a, a very specific question that kind of popped into my head at the very start of the conversation that I wanted to ask you about. Um, and so we, we had a conversation, <clears throat> we had a conversation with, uh, with a woman, uh, like a month ago, maybe, um, about the death of her, uh, the death of her, oh. uh, twins. Um, yeah, I listened to that gave, actually. She gave, she gave birth to them and then, uh, the yeah. night of one of them died and then the next day, the, um, the, the other one died and, and and about the grief and everything like that. And like, I really, I have a one-year-old daughter and I um, honestly, I couldn't even speak the whole time we were having the conversation. Like I was like so overwhelmed. My brain turned to mush. I was listening intently. And then when I went to try and form a question, like my brain just like fell apart. Like I couldn't even, Yeah. I was so, I would become so overwhelmed with the thought of my daughter dying that, I, and that was so overwhelming to me. That I just couldn't even, I couldn't even form a sentence without, without becoming like total mush. And, um, and so I, I, my, the question is, and I don't know if this is necessarily in your scope, but you know, whatever your thoughts might be on it is like, what kind of things, what kind of things would you try to focus on with working with a parent who is if he has a child who is uh has like a terminal cancer or something mm. like that and and because like i because it, it's such a different it was such a different feeling to anything that i've ever encountered in thinking about death with like my own death or the death of somebody else um like it was just so it was just a totally different totally different experience thinking about about that yeah that scenario i can totally um, was, i can was, I can totally imagine that. That would be, yeah, it would be tremendously hard. Um, I don't have kids and I'm an only child, but um, I'm about to start volunteering in children's hospice at, um, at a place called Emily's House here in Toronto. And I just did all of their, their training and they, they go through it a bit in, in the training. And obviously I learned some in the deaf doula course too. And I've had to talk to, you know, parents through my experiences. Um, one day at a time, really. It's at Emily's house. Um, it's a space, it's a, very, it's a very beautiful and unique space where families can go to, and live together and be with their, their child. Um, that is at end of life. And most of the work that the volunteers do there um, is interacting with the parents and the families and just having simple, mindful conversations or, you know, yeah, asking what they would like to talk to, asking how they would like to be approached because it's going to feel different for for everyone. Um, I think just, again, going back to the deep listening, we have to really pay attention to what what people's specific needs are. And, mm-hmm. you know, I can intuit what it might feel like to lose a child, but I don't have children. So I can't, I can't empathize in the way that I'd really like to. I can't put myself in those shoes, but I can listen deeply. I can ask the questions that, you know, I feel need to be asked in that particular moment. 
um, I can just offer support and care. Sometimes people just need to be heard and maybe need to have Mm. someone to talk to that's outside of their familial experience. So, you know, maybe it might be easier to talk to a death doula than it would be your husband about or your wife or your partner about um, your child's dying. You know, it might it might be mm-hmm. easier to talk to someone that uh, isn't isn't connected in that particular way. Um, yeah. In the past, yeah, I've just I've just asked questions and held space, and you know, there's no there's no rules for anything. It's just learning how to how to be present and be centered in 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 the moment, and uh, figuring out you know what people need in that moment too. It's yeah, I listened to that podcast and that episode that you did and holy, it was so, so beautiful. And I have so much respect yeah. for that individual and also the work that you guys are doing. You asked beautiful questions and yeah, I felt a lot of, I felt a lot of what you felt. I moved through all of those feelings of like, wow, I couldn't, without children, I still couldn't, I can't, I couldn't believe what it would feel like to, mm. I can't believe what it would feel like to, to lose a child for sure. But yeah, just presence, deep listening, active listening. I think it all comes back to that, really. Yeah. Yeah, I think yeah. everything you said there is kind of like, kind of like summarizes, I guess, the whole, the complexities. Like, I guess, like the simplicity, like simultaneously, like the simplicity and the complexity yeah. of what being a death doula is, mm-hmm. is like, is like, it's, it's, it, it is, it, it, I think it sounds like it, it, it is this like simple thing where you can, where you can boil it down to being like a present active listener who is like caring and emoting, but at the same time, the, 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 like the, the endless, the endless, um, uh, the endless like forms that that needs to take. Yeah. To, like who yeah. you are dealing with, like it lends like a, a tremendous complexity to, to, to it and like an, and an ability to adapt, you know, and, and kind of morph to, uh, to all the, all the various situations and scenarios that you find yourself in. Yeah. And yeah, again, and just like, have just to a, shape just yourself. Pl- yeah. Sorry, mm-hmm. go ahead, Jen. Mm-hmm. I was just no, saying, yeah, you I, do I was have say, to just shape a- yourself. Yeah. That little delay, which, which is, I know you go. No, no, you go. No, you go. Um, I, I, I was just going to say another like shout out to, uh, the Institute of Traditional Medicine. Um, again, the, the contemplative end of, uh, life care program that they, that they put on, they, they do it once a year. And like, if you're, if you're interested in it, I mean, their website has a ton of information, itmworld.org, uh, org. Um, and, uh, uh, yeah, like, like go check it out. Like they've got lots of resources. Um, and it's, it's great. It's just, it feels great to be a part of this, like this, this training program. And, you know, uh, the, I'm, I'm filled with that excitement of like learning, you know, like getting back into like a, a program, mm. like a school program where you're just like, Oh fuck. Like, I just want to, I want to sop everything up. Like this feels so great. Um, which is why I was so excited to like have you on Brooke and, and talk to you today. Um, uh, enough plugging, uh, things outside of you. I let's, you know, before we wrap here, please let people know, um, first of all, tell people about likely general because it's one of the best little boutique shops in Toronto and people should 
very, very much go spend their money there if they are looking for a place to yeah. support a local business. But, but also, how can people like find you? And you know, if they if they're in the you know Toronto area and looking for a death doula, how can they find you? Thank you, Jared. You're such a a big fan of the shop. I'm so grateful for that. I love um, it. I fucking yeah. love it. And I was gushing about it earlier today. It was, it was, it was actually so nice, you know. It's so, yeah. It's, um, yeah, it's, I own a shop and gallery space in the West, you know, called Life in General. And it's on, it's on the Insta spam. It's on the website. So it's, you know, it's out there. Um, and uh, what we do is we host and we host and sell work from over 300 queer and marginalized artists. And there's new shows every month and a retail store and lots of things happening that are community building. Um, and that's been, it'll be 10 years in July, which is pretty wild and wow, beautiful. Cool. Um, and then if you're interested in the death doula death, I'm starting that in a more full-time way. I've been sort of part-time for the last, I don't know, six years. Um, and the, of course the, the pandemic made it a little tricky. Um, but yeah, I'm going more okay. full-time in the summertime. And if people want to find me, um, my doula business it's called Length of the Candle, and my website is lengthofthecandle.com, and my Instagram is at Length of the Candle. Um, and yeah, they can find me and read about me and book me through there. I'm going through some website changes, but I'll have a new one up, up in a couple of months. So, yeah. Cool. Yeah. Cool. Well, Brooke, um, this was as lovely as I thought it was going to be. Thank you so much for taking time to sit down and chat with us about um, about your work as a death doula and and uh, getting philosophical with us has been real, real sweet. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. You too. You're amazing. That is it for this week's edition of Routine Checkup. Thank you so much for tuning in, folks. It means the world to us. And if you'd like to continue listening to the podcast, you can do that right here on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And of course, if you want to support the podcast further, you can leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, or you can simply rate the podcast on your Spotify mobile app. And uh, even Better than that, why don't you tell someone that you know, tell someone that you love, tell someone that you don't know, that you listen to Sick Boy Podcast and recommend it to them because we always love those extra ears. The podcast is produced and hosted by myself, Jeremy Saunders, Brian Stever, and Taylor McGilvery. The podcast is managed by Jeffrey Lonis at Talent Bureau. The theme music for today's episode comes from Rich O'Coin. Thanks again, folks. Hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back next week. That's it for now. My name is Jeremy, and this is Simple. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.